Okay, well, uh, welcome uh, to another interview of, uh, of, of EFSAS held with an uh, interesting personality. This time we have with us uh, Burzin Wagner, who is uh, for a long time has been an EFSAS fellow, but apart from that, he is also a member of the Center for the Study of Pakistan at SOAS, for the Center for Iranian Studies at SOAS, um, also a member at SOAS South Asia Institute, and a visiting India fellow at RUSI. Uh, and today with uh, Burzin, uh, we are going to talk about, especially because of the fact that he is a member of the Center for the Study of Pakistan and Iran and the South Asia Institute, mostly going to talk about the issue of Balochistan, um, an issue which has been um, not given the, the right attention we, we, we believe in, in Europe, but apart from that also about the contemporary issues in, uh, happening in Pakistan specifically, but this time because of his expertise on, uh, on Balochistan. Um, welcome, uh, Burzin. Thank you, Mr. Qureshi, and my best thanks to the uh, EFSAS, as well as colleagues uh, in Amsterdam. It's nice to be back uh, in business, shall we say, after this hiatus of the pandemic, and that we're all getting back in the saddle. Um, as we've discussed, uh, I propose to provide a curtain raiser on Baluchi contemporary history and early modern history. So if you would indulge me and your viewers too, in that I would read something, and I do hope it is interesting and not terribly dreary, but relevant to what we would subsequently discuss, the crux of our discussion today. So please uh, allow me to provide a curtain raiser to how we have come here with uh, the uh, historical background as such. Britain, whose interest in India's trans-Indus Western frontiers date from the early 19th century, was the only foreign power to succeed in establishing relatively efficient control over Balochistan prior to the founding of Pakistan in 1947. The First Afghan War, 1839-41, and annexation of the Sindh and Punjab to British India soon thereafter, mark the formal arrival of British military and political power to the region. In its early phases, British influence over tribal affairs in Balochistan was exerted largely through agreements negotiated with tribal leaders and through subsidies, manipulations of tribal feuds, and the conduct of periodic punitive expeditions against rebellious tribesmen. But by the late 1870s, the British had secured direct control over a broad belt of territory in northeastern Balochistan, including Quetta, and had reduced the nominally independent Khanate of Kalat, the state of Kalat, to a status of utter dependency. By the 1890s, Balochistan was largely pacified and stabilized, never thereafter a serious challenge to British authority. At independence, both British Balochistan and, more grudgingly, the four princely states, Kalat, Karan, Lasvela, and Makran, merged with Pakistan, repeat grudgingly and under a shadow. For a brief period, 1952 to 55, the princely states were given semi-autonomous status as the Balochistan States Union. But this arrangement collapsed when West Pakistan was declared a single province in October 1955. In July 1970, Balochistan was restored to separate provincial status, its boundaries incorporating the former British Balochistan and the Balochistan states. The years 1973 to 77 were marked by a major Baluchi and Brahui tribal rebellion against the government, 
backed by the opposition National Army Party, NAP. The crisis developed when Zulfikar Ali Bhutto dismissed the NAP coalition government in 1973 on the grounds that they had patronized and encouraged violence and smuggling and had opposed modernization efforts. NAP and other opposition leaders were arrested and jailed and the NAP banned in 1975. In 76, the following year, the Sardari tribal uh, chief system was abolished. The war, meanwhile, had escalated, and by 1974, there were reported to be as many as 55,000 tribesmen fighting some 70,000 government troops armed with sophisticated weaponry provided to Islamabad also by the Shah of Iran, who obviously did not want to see an irredentist Sunni Balochistan movement in his kingdom, Pahlavi Iran, where Balochistan was, of course, a conspicuous Sunni province, just like in Pakistan, where it is a Sunni Hanafi province. It is estimated that over 5,000 insurgents and 3,000 government troops were killed, large quantities of livestock destroyed, and the interruption of food supplies to civilians in insurgent-controlled areas caused immense suffering. And the insurgency continued fitfully until the fall of Bhutto's government in 1977 and the subsequent release of the imprisoned NAP leaders. After the declaration of martial law by General Ziaul Haq, there was, well, relative peace, albeit deceptive peace, in Balochistan. The government posted military and paramilitary forces throughout the region and increased some government expenditure and defrays on communications and economic and social programs. In 1979, Baluchi and Pashto leaders formed the Pakistan National Party PNP as a successor to the NAP, and in 1982, this joined with the MRD, Movement for the Restoration of Democracy Against Ziaul Haq. Violence which erupted in Sindh province in late 1984 led to a meeting in London of leaders of the three minority provinces and the formation of a Sindhi Baluch Pashtun Front aimed at achieving a confederal form of government. Martial law was obviously not lifted until 1985 and that then dampened much autonomous political activity within Balochistan. But riots in 1986 broke out in many cities throughout Pakistan with ethnic groups demanding decentralization and ethnic autonomy, and that has continued ever since. Balochistan and the NWFP have been greatly affected by the government of over 3 million refugees from Afghanistan to Pakistan following the 1979 Soviet invasion, and 20% of them went to Balochistan. Resistance groups moved freely across the border, and their successful attacks on Afghan forces frequently provoking retaliatory action. The spillover of the war into Baluchi territory has caused many Baluchis to call for the return of the refugees to Afghanistan, and they express fears that the refugees, together with the non-Baluchi immigrants from other areas of Pakistan, particularly Punjab, have made the Baluchis into a minority within their homeland. So that I hope afforded at least something of a comprehensive overview to uh, EFSA's viewers of where we are now as such. Over uh, to you, Mr. Uh, thank you, uh, thank you, uh, Burzeen. Uh, uh, one question before we, on the outset, of course, before we go into the historical uh, sensitivities of the issue. Do you, as, as an expert on this, on this particular issue, do you consider the issue of Balochistan more of a political issue or of a human rights issue? Well, actually both. Uh, that let me take the a form of it political, which I can answer very briefly, if not bluntly like this. Questions of accession to the dominion of Pakistan mm -hmm. 
insofar as Balochistan is concerned, are as old as that of Jammu and Kashmir to the Indian Union. Uh, Jammu and Kashmir going back to the October 47 war and Balochistan to March 1948. But of course, Kashmir, for all the predictable reasons, um, is um, consistently under the spotlight, and so are Indian forces and the Indian government, unlike Balochistan, uh, where we have a question of a Muslim minority, a rested Muslim minority, who doesn't feel Pakistani enough to be part of uh, the Federation of Pakistan. Somehow that is lost on mainstream Pakistanis who think that in very simplistic terms that Kashmiris are Muslims, ergo they are the only Muslim majority province in the in, uh, Republic of India, and therefore they wouldn't like to uh, live in what is ostensibly a Hindu state and thus vindicated two nation theory. Well, then how do you explain Baluchis revolting? And this was a quasi Marxist insurgency since the 1970s, so much so that the Shah of Iran had to step in with Apache helicopters and state of our uh, art weaponry to quell it, since Zulfikar Ali Bhutto and the Pakistan forces couldn't do it on their own. Uh, so that goes to show that uh, confessional bonds of religion. Uh, hardly matter for anything. And of course, that would be even more embarrassing if we go back a few years earlier to 71 and what happened with Muslim Bengalis in the Eastern province, who were also Sunni Hanafis, predominantly like the Pakistani Punjabis and Pashtuns. And obviously they didn't feel Pakistani enough to continue in that um, Federation of Pakistan and went their way and the rest is history, 50 years on with the Republic of Bangladesh. So that is the political bit. As for the human rights bit, again, uh, once again, I may quote what Gideon Rackman of the Financial Times mentioned in his special uh, survey of India and Pakistan at 70, back in 2017. And Mr. Qureshi, you and EFSA's viewers would know from my publications and perhaps other talks where I have mentioned, and it's been on record, so much so that I can even now uh, uh, quote it impromptu what he mentioned therein after all these years, that whereas India's forces come under considerable scrutiny for what happens in Jammu and Kashmir, Pakistan gets an utter free hand to do whatever it wants in Balochistan and right across Pakistan with everyone turning a blind eye to it. For the most obvious of reasons, the Western Alliance, since they need uh, the generals in Islamabad to um, keep militants in check, lest Pakistan uh, uh, exports terror to uh, Western Europe and North America. And that is pretty much blackmail with which they worked and for which they rent rental accruals come to the deep state and the Pakistani establishment. And it's they've done pretty well for themselves, but at the cost of the Balochis and the human rights organizations uh, abuses that the voice of independent Balochistan and to the credit of Pakistan Human Rights Commission national bodies who have also pointed this out that it is horrible what is going on, so much so that some years ago, Zora Yusuf, who was the chairwoman of the PHRC said that the government, the administration is deliberately painting it with sectarian colors by showing it as a problem between Baluchis and Hazaras and this, that and the other, by fomenting problems and anarchy in the first place through the intelligence service and uh, military nexus in order to give it a sectarian coloring when actually it is a national problem and it is a provincial political issue, but the government is doing this for external, uh, i.e. Western public consumption and hoodwinking others that this is just a sectarian issue and there's nothing more to it than that. Well, there is, uh, there's nothing sectarian about uh, Baluchis being Sunnis 
or say Sindhis next door being uh, Sunnis or uh, Pashtuns or Punjabis being Sunnis. Well, all are Sunnis and of course there are Shias too. But the point is uh, being Sunni and Muslim enough isn't uh, good enough to feel Pakistani. And that's what the authorities in Islamabad can't handle, much less hack. They can't handle the truth. And that's what it really comes down to. Because, because what they're saying that there are not Baluchis who are, you can say, co-opted into the system, just like Pashtuns who've done very well and feel very Pakistani enough. Now, Mr. Qureshi, just a digression on that count. Uh, one often years of Pashtuns as feeling very Afghan and part of the Afghan heritage and all that. But it must be pointed out simultaneously that there are Pashtuns south of the Durin line who feel Pakistani and are very patriotic Pakistanis in the central services, in the military forces, in daily Pakistani public life who don't feel discriminated or feel Pakistani enough. Fair enough. But then there is a groundswell of Pashtun discontent concomitantly also in the provinces, the uh, Pashti movement, as you know, in recent years, who don't feel Pakistani enough to. Both needs, to, we need to dilate upon both by not uh, 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 airbrushing out the other. Simultaneously, much less in the Baluchistan scenario uh, year that we have, uh, a sliver of Baluchis who are, you can say they are patriotic Pakistanis, have no issues with this insurgency from the 70s or have made uh, built bridges with the administration in Islamabad and have obviously profited from it and are comfortable being Pakistani. And that needs to be stated too. One isn't being biased about it. At least I'm not going to do that. I'm stating that they are Pakistani enough and they feel Pakistani enough to continue uh, without um, having any secessionist uh, tendencies to mind. But then there is this other side of the Baluchi intelligentsia, the writers, teachers, journalists who are utterly dissatisfied and have not seen anything worth its name in terms of development in what is Pakistan's largest and still most impoverished province 75 years on. But uh, we, we, it's it's interesting you say that. But you know, in in for, for a European audience, uh, Balochistan has become an issue, I guess, since the killing of Akbar Bukti uh, under the Musharraf regime. Before that, Balochistan has, of course, for the Western audience, reasonably been at at peace in the sense that there were, of course, secessionist movements. But as you pointed out. There were Baloch who co-opted with the government. You know, Bukti became a chief minister. The Maris, the Mengals, all have been part of that power structure. What, according to you, essentially, uh, is it is it really the killing of, of Akbar Bukti, which um, which introduced this prolonged Baloch secessionist movement, which also has now turned into an armed movement, or was there something else? Uh, two points from that. First, to take your initial comment uh, that uh, the Baluch issue in the 70s and 80s was airbrushed or little known, precisely because Balochistan was caught in the vortex of the Cold War uh, and where it didn't really matter. Afghanistan was the theater of operation and whatever Zia said uh, was uh, accepted by the West, particularly by the Reagan administration since they didn't want to ups upset him. Obviously they wouldn't because Pakistan was the conduit to um, subvent the Mujahideen fighters. So obviously at, during that period from say 77, right up to um, the um, Soviet Union departing in February 89, Washington would 
not, would, would turn a blind eye as the Reagan administration uh, did to whatever Zia did uh, during that period, even during the martial law period, and even after a so-called semblance of democracy was restored under Junejo 85 onwards, when Zia still called the shots. And he did right at the very last day in August 88, as you and I would very well know, and so would EFSA's listeners, which is why Baluchistan was not a question of focus then. And it would have not been a question of focus in the um, uh, mid-70s because forget Pakistan and Bhutto, no American administration would ever upset the Shah of Iran, who was their most solid ally in Southwest Asia, the Pahlavi Imperial uh, administration. And if the Shah was going to support uh, Balochistan, since he didn't want to have a spillover effect into his Balochistan province, which is the same namesake province, uh, Mr. Qureshi, your uh, listeners must note, just like Macedonia is a province within the Hellenic Republic of Greece and the independent uh, unit uh, country now that we have from the former Yugoslavia, the namesake province and a namesake country. Likewise, uh, in Azerbaijan is a ex-Soviet uh, republic turned independent sovereign nation today, but there is an Azerbaijan province in Iran too in Northwest Iran, which uh, shares the same name, same people, same language. Likewise in Pakistan, there is a Baluchistan historically that is spread from Southwest Pakistan into Southeast Iran. And in both republics, Iran and Pakistan, Baluchistan is the largest province in physical landmass. In the Islamic Republic of Iran, and in the Islamic Republic of Pakistan, and in both, it is the most impoverished province. Uh, so uh, that's the reason why nobody would have wanted to uh, upset the Shah, which is why the whole question uh, was never really given much uh, notice in the mid-70s. And India wasn't uh, keen on uh, doing anything about it because it considered an internal Pakistan problem. India wasn't interested in fomenting any trouble, which we tend to hear of now in recent decades. But India had no hand in the 70s with anything that was going on there. It was purely an internal matter. It was a quasi-Marxist insurgency that was utterly local in inspiration and uh, in uh, its groundswell of uh, action and movement. To your second point uh, that you mentioned about uh, Bukti, yes, you can argue quite uh, compellingly that that was a flashpoint. And that made it clear that some do still ask, why did Musharraf have to uh, pull the trigger? Maybe he which did. Here's the question. Why did he have, have to pull the trigger? Well, because he was under pressure on several fronts, particularly with the, uh, I would say, with the high command in Ralpindi, not Islamabad, the barracks, the high command, the military, GHQ, Ralpindi, to show that uh, he could uh, matter and that he did matter. Given that his entire status and his uh, run as uh, chief of army staff uh, were, and even as CMLA prior to that, Chief Martial Administrator from October 99, was under question as being of an American stooge, particularly after 9-11. So he, uh, in all probability, he needed to burnish his credentials on that count, which is why he did. And he could pull it off so audaciously, knowing again, and there's a sense of deja vu to Pakistani history, just like Zia did, that Washington would turn a blind's eye, uh, would turn a Nelson's eye, because they won't interfere in what is a local matter, since uh, they need us, which of course Washington did. And right up to 2011, um, uh, the drones were carried out from Shamsi Air Base, as you know, in Balochistan, where the US, uh, which was a CIA air station facility, as such. And of course, a PAF Dalbandin, uh, which is a Pakistan Air Force forward facility that was used and was given to the Americans too in Balochistan. 
So obviously the Americans had uh, an insurgency uh, uh, to cont contain for which they needed Pakistan. And Pakistan knew it could squeeze everyone for what it's worth back in the Afghan period under Zia. And this time Adam Musharraf, so obviously he, he decided he could pull the trigger and that's what he did. And that has been um, in one sense a point of no return for many biologists that they could, not that they ever trusted the army before, memories of the 70s, mid 70s were still loom large in the biology intellectual landscape, but, uh, and, and of course what Bhutto did, but uh, particularly even now, even with a Muhajir like Musharraf who had no Pakistani baggage, one could say, uh, but he was still a, 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 a forces man and committed to the Pakistani um, status quo and what was perceived as an insurgency problem. Thinking of it in managerial terms as, a, as an insurgency problem and not as a long-standing festering issue, which required, uh, which required political imagination to contain it and even to subdue it. The, which leads me to say that um, things would not have become so bad had Islamabad been so ham-handed about it, which it has been. Do, do you, because you also mentioned Bangladesh, do you actually see uh, similarities between the two? You know, the Bangladeshis were, of course, suppressed because of uh, the language issue mainly, uh, which came about. So it, it, one would say that uh, eradicating or trying to eradicate Bengali culture, Bengali language, Bengali-ness was probably one of the um, reasons why the people of Bangladesh uh, at some point of time, because there has been a history that they did consider themselves Pakistani, so at some point of time did not want to be part of Pakistan. Do, do you see some similarities in Balochistan and Bangladesh? Yes and no. And at times they tend, they, if pressed to its logical conclusion, they tend to be superficial similarities and superficial differences. But there is a more than a smidgen of truth to both aspects. I don't wish to sound ambivalent or contradictory. I will explain why I said yes and no, and I'm speaking from both sides of my mouth as well. Uh, again, uh, I said questions of accession to the uh, dominion of Pakistan with Balochistan loom large since March 48. And it's, there's a big question mark. Well, there's a very big question mark after Jinnah's only visit to Dhaka University in February 48, where he rather imperiously said that Urdu is going to be the state language in both wings and that's that, take it or leave it. And then there were riots and some people, students were killed. And that left a very bad taste in East Bengali mouths. Uh, some would like to trace uh, the secession in 71 back to um, Feb 48. Uh, I wouldn't quite put it so, but I would concede that the trajectory goes back to February 48, uh, that um, East Bengal, which became East Pakistan, uh, felt it was not given its due from the very outset in the new dominion, and that it was uh, always sidestepped through the 50s, 60s. So yes, there is that to be said. So yes, one can say the question of even East Bengal becoming East Pakistan, uh, goes back to Feb 48, just a month before March 48, and the Kalad uh, uh, question uh, uh, arose with Jinnah. And of course, then East Pakistan went its way and became an independent sovereign state in December 71. But then, now there are the differences I must mention. Uh, in Bengalis felt that their sub-regional culture was being um, 
dismissed out of hand and that the authorities in the Western wing were disdainful towards them psychologically, uh, socially and culturally. The Baluchis were in one sense more integrated into the West Pakistani wing because uh, they shared similar, similar, uh, similar physical features. Of course, the linguistic identity was different, but in more ways than one, they could meld into the West Pakistani social landscape, and they did. It was not so conspicuous as with the Eastern wing, which really felt like a different world. And it was, well, two time zones away, mind you, and a thousand kilometers away, separated from uh, Karachi, which was the capital first, and subsequently Islamabad. So there was no question, one can't say that Islamabad was out to suppress the uh, Baluch's language and culture, though there was a, a de-emphasizing of it, which happened with all the provinces, uh, given that Urduization was pushed uh, relentlessly by the government. And we see that in the state education textbooks and the like, and uh, across the education, uh, higher education sectors in Pakistan, where the provinces feel that the, uh, their, their languages uh, and the linguistic culture was relegated to something as being folkloric and of uh, inconsequential and inconsequential in the national scheme of things, and that Urdu is a higher culture, therefore higher language, and that ought to be accorded pride. It happened in the East Pakistan scenario where Bengali was. Um, Bengalis felt that they were given a stepmotherly treatment, true. But, so this, that, so there's a difference here on, that I just pointed out on that aspect. Is there another, is there another and, difference? Another point, if I may, is this. Um, Bengalis were always very politically articulate. Now, this goes back to Lord Kurzna, the division of Bengal in 1905 onwards, and the Bengali extremists within the Indian Congress Party and other extremists of the Indian National Movement who uh, went on a rampage against the British administration in what was Calcutta and then New Delhi. And Bengalis, well, Bengalis were highly literate. Uh, there was a middle, uh, mobilized middle class. There was a sense of political awareness. All of this then and even now in Baluchistan is lacking where literacy rates are abysmal and with female rates even lower than 15% at best. Uh, there was no sense of a political culture as such, which was, which had a long memory of struggle, autonomy, independence, standing up for its own sense of identity uh, and rights, as we had in the Bengal scenario, first against the British, then against uh, West Pakistan. Uh, it, because of Baluchistan's, uh, it's, it's underpopulated. Uh, literacy and on all social indicators, it is uh, ranks very low. So obviously, uh, this uh, does take its toll in what passes for the Baluchi autonomous movement. Sorry, you wanted to point out something. Go ahead. How different is that? Those issues of of, of Baluchistan, because I I've noticed you mentioned that very often in 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 your writings, and other people mentioned that as well. That apart from the Punjab province. These issues are there in every province. Like yes. you have the PTM movement now, which is again about the same 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 concerns. Uh, you, have, you have similar movements in Sindh. Um, so uh, is it because for for many in Europe, Pakistan is a country, of course. But for people who know Pakistan, there are a lot of Pakistans in Pakistan. One is the Punjab Pakistan, and then there are the others. So how much of this? is similar in other provinces? Uh, let, let's start this way. It, how is it dissimilar in other provinces? In that um, Sindhis, Pashtuns, 
muhajirs um, are not found dumped by the roadside with uh, mutilated body parts, tortured, burnt marks, or even with human feces in their mouth. Uh, as we, uh, the voice of independent Balochistan and Baloch human rights organizations have uh, found with more than 14,000 deaths. And that was around 2015. That was the last- Why is that? Why, why, why are the Baloch found like that? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll come to it in a moment. So that's dissimilar. That doesn't happen in the other provinces, but that logically comes into now to answer what you asked, why is that? Why is the administration so, shall we say, relentless and malicious towards uh, its largest province? Well, because it feels it has a free hand in it. And it feels it has a free hand in it because it looks upon Balochistan as a zero sum game. There can be no compromise with local elements, with provincial, um, with delegation of provincial um, authority or decentralization, because it's considered uh, geostrategically a very uh, sensitive location. Balochistan, as Pakistan's province, straddles the Arabian Sea and what is the Gulf of Oman and the Straits of Hormuz, from which over 85% of the world's oil supply passes. But then you say, what does that have to do with killing Baluchis? Well, Balochistan was always strategic in that sense. It was strategic during the Cold War, and it is, has been after 9-11, and continues to be so that the government in Islamic fields, they cannot uh, let power slip from their hand. And it's not just the power question, it's also the question of resources, because Balochistan is mineral rich. And uh, that brings me to point out what I had uh, mentioned uh, in some of my previous talks, and that I would like to very quickly uh, highlight here again. Rekodik lies in the westernmost part of Balochistan and Pakistan, straddling just 10 miles near the Iranian border. I beg your pardon, barely 100 miles from the Iranian border. The Geological Survey of Pakistan discovered this site in 1969 and about a decade later concluded after surveys undertaken that gold and copper ore deposits concentrated in a mere 100 square kilometers zone are worth about $500 billion. And it is predicated on mining estimates provided by the Australians over successive uh, years to the Pakistani authorities that the total value of Rekodig, not just this uh, concentrated 100 square kilometer zone, is close to $1 trillion. 35 kilometers away at Sainduk, uh, again on the northeastern uh, tip where Balochistan ends and Iran begins, the Chinese since 2001 are mining almost 600 million tons of copper ore and their efforts are yielding annually 25 tons of gold and about 12 to 15,000 tons of copper. And this is to say nothing about just gold and copper. What about uh, Pakistan's only onshore gas deposits, which all natural gas deposits that are in Balochistan too? Uh, never mind the gold and copper, but even the gas, what has, as I said, in trickle-down developmental economics come to the Baluchis when the Baluchis feel disgruntled that Islamabad has siphoned off uh, these uh, outlays for development elsewhere, in the Punjab and elsewhere nationally, but it has not made its way to, in what is still the most impoverished province of Pakistan, where uh, water debts are quite common in Quetta, where uh, the, these four desalinization plants in the capital, provincial capital quota, of which I believe some years back, uh, two or three were out of order. 
And this, with all this money and resources, uh, you've just heard me mention the figures to you of 500 billion and like, and you're telling me there's no drinking water available, but there is more than drinking water available in swanky downtown Lahore and its restaurants in Gulberg and Defense Colony. So Baluchis do have a right to ask, and they ask because they see those very Punjabis from Lahore uh, in Quetta calling the shots, running the administration at large since there has been a wholesale import of um, trained civil servants and others. Now, why is that the case? Pakistan would argue is because there aren't any trained Baluchis. Well, why aren't there any trained Baluchis? And we go into this circular reasoning that the state uh, uh, has never really concentrated much on health and uh, development uh, in Baluchistan. Uh, and of course, nationally. Uh, a month ago, in a news report published on 23rd of April, in, of course, as you know, the, one of the most respected newspapers coming out of Pakistan, the Dawn, uh, it has quoted Prime Minister Shabash Sharif as saying that he would raise the issue of Balochistan's missing persons with quote unquote powerful quarters. And he has also said that he was apologetic to the people of the province. Balochistan is Pakistan's biggest province geographically, but despite having a small population, it was left behind. And he goes on saying that God has blessed the province with an abundance of natural resources, but the benefits its residents got from these resources were equivalent to salt in flour. Um, how serious do you take this? I'm glad you brought it up. And again, Mr. Uh, Qureshi, I'm going to read something which will provide an effective response. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Shahbaz Sharif. Let's rewind to the other member of the family. And this is what I had to say in a previous proceeding, not at EFSAS, but at the United Nations Geneva. I mentioned about these resources to you about gold and copper, right? The accruals from it. So here I have to say this, which I had said earlier, and I'm glad to bring myself to reiterate it. If these accruals had been of appreciable worth, Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif need not have gone to town in 2009 with promises of an aghaz e hakuk e baluchistan a new beginning of Baluch rights, as that translates from Urdu. Well, it is barely worth the paper typed upon, as I said back in 2015. What will be worth watching and plainly portentous for the Baluchis is the sunset clause I clearly forewarned about last year at the UN because Pakistan's third constitution passed its 21st amendment on 6th January 2015, which unconditionally bestowed immunity to all military courts for trial of terrorists, real or imagined. The rider, this sunset clause declares that this will be repealed on January 7th, 2017, which has been done. And there is nothing to suggest an extension may not be a foregone conclusion. So one brother has achieved pretty much nothing with the powers that be, the so-called powerful forces, and it's not going to happen even uh, with this brother who will be completely stonewalled by the deep state, the provincial constabulary and GHQ, Ralpindi, who know what they feel is best for Balochistan, namely uh, running it with an iron rod. But don't you think it is- Like Shahbaz Sharif, much less his brother back in 2009. Don't you think it is quite significant that Shahbaz Sharif is saying that he would raise the issue of Balochistan's missing persons with powerful quarters? In two ways, it's significant. One, he's, of course, accepting that there are missing persons in Balochistan. Uh, 
Second, he is of course also diminishing the powers he should have held in, an, in a republic of being the prime minister, which is the most powerful quarter there ought to be. Uh, he's clearly mentioning the army here. Uh, do you think that is significant? Uh, first no. of all, acknowledging it. No, no, because it is, uh, uh, it's, it's common knowledge. And not that it's common hush-hush knowledge only mentioned in drawing rooms or among trusted friends and intimates. It is public because at one point, the Supreme Court had hearings at the Quetta High Court for missing persons uh, some years ago, again, which I reported in my uh, reports to UNPO Geneva. And those sittings were undertaken, and I'm so sorry, but the name of the Chief Justice back then eludes me now. Uh, the Supreme Court consciously in good faith made an effort to do this, to hear out what were Baluchi grievances, very serious grievances of people missing, mutilated bodies and the like that I pointed out. And uh, nothing came of it in quite a high court too, where the provincial constabulary was being questioned about it. They stonewalled that too. So this is, there's nothing spectacular or admirable about Shahbaz Sharif uh, saying on, using the phrasal expression, missing persons on record. It has been used by the Pakistan Human Rights Commission, by the Supreme Court of Pakistan, by uh, those in the media, including the Dawn newspaper, and it's a one-time sister publication, which is now defunct, the National Herald Monthly Magazine, which reported extensively on these matters. So it's not like, well, to give a recent example, uh, in downtown Moscow, don't mention the W word war, or you get uh, picked up and 15 years in the clink, uh, no questions asked. No, you can mention the word MP, missing persons in downtown Karachi, or even standing outside government headquarters, Ralpindi, if you wanted to, and uh, nothing would happen to you. Uh, well, I suppose not outside GHQ Ralpindi or the ISR headquarters in Apar Islamabad, but uh, you can mention it. So everyone knows about it. So Shahbaz Sharif to come and uh, take kudos for it, is uh, pretty much pathetic as far as I'm concerned. This is much ado, ado about nothing. Everyone knows it. And um, insofar as uh, it goes to uh, diminishing his prime ministerial powers, he knows that, that um, that's not going to happen because um, he has to answer to his Punjabi constituency. And to say nothing of the goodwill of uh, General uh, Sharif, uh, I beg your pardon, General Bajwa, and GHQ um, uh, again. So he's, he's pretty much a makeshift arrangement until elections take place and the cards fall out and we see what happens after the elections. So I, I don't set much store by anything of what he said in terms of missing persons. There's nothing spectacular or earth shattering about it. And this, this stonewalling you talk about, how much of this stonewalling has to do, you have of course mentioned the, the, the abundance of resources Balochistan has. So how, man, how much of this stonewalling has to do with Baloch or, or Chinese interest in Balochistan. As you know, the CPAC project, of course, also runs through it. There have been protests in Gwadar uh, of some sections uh, totally opposing CPAC projects and of other sections not opposing them, but at least asking something in return for the resources that are being used of Baloch people. So how much of this stonewalling has to do with Chinese strategic interests? Quite a bit. Because obviously uh, the CPEC uh, initiative uh, is something which has lined the pockets of the generals. They have a stake in it, but others too in the civil administration, no question about it. But the military which has called the shots and has seen through a CPEC being steered through. Uh, General Rahil Sharif that I just mentioned a, a moment ago has personally assured the Chinese authorities uh, of 
a safe corridor through Balochistan. In fact, a safe corridor all through Pakistan from Balochistan up to Gilgit Baltistan, the northern areas. And that there would be special forces maintained in this very large uh, province for uh, CPEC assets, including the Guada Post, which is uh, practically, uh, not practically, it is owned by the Chinese, leased out for some 40 plus years and underutilized and pretty much a white elephant in the scheme of things. So um, it has a lot to do with the Chinese uh, being assuaged that uh, their presence is welcome, ostensibly welcome when it's not. And we'll come to that in a moment too, you know what I'm about to say. Mm -hmm. And also that um, the military may give it a spin, but nobody's buying it. In February, 2018, what was spectacular, not Shabazz Sharif's nonsense about missing persons, but this was spectacular, I must inform your listeners, was when Farhan Bukhari and Kiran Stacey, two correspondents of the FT, broke it to the world and the English-speaking press at large, that a Pakistani government official off the record mentioned to both of them, and this was the cover story carried in the FT, that for the last five years, Baluch insurgents have been conducting talks with Beijing at a third location. Mm -hmm. uh, so note something at a location outside Pakistan and for five plus years, so 2018 minus five. But he also went on to state that we, uh, that is Islamabad is not privy to the talks. So I have no nothing further to furnish you with even in terms of juicy tidbits because, and this is the alarming, and this is a disquieting uh, and a sensational point, Mr. Qureshi, uh, Islamabad was, was not present in the room when these talks are happening. So it's between the Baluchis and the Chinese only. Clearly the Chinese may have uh, put out some carrots, but then what about those carrots? Well, if that were the case, we would not be seeing Chinese engineers killed uh, on uh, the Chinese consulate attack in Karachi, which I mentioned on BBC uh, uh, Radio 4 some years ago, as you would know it, and EFSAS very kindly covered that commentary on YouTube, the recording of my interview. And then that brings us to what happened recently, where a female uh, bomb operative blew herself up outside the Confucius Institute in Karachi. Now, I, and that is something more sensational than Shabazz Sharif's silly remarks uh, in that uh, here we have a female bomber for the first time uh, spearheading, spearheading the Baluch cause. Mm. That is going to be something of a game changer. And how, how is it going to be a game changer? Good or bad well, for the Baloch? Well, well it's, uh, it's ominous, to put it in a word. And it again takes me back to the, the FT report, which I consistently like to bring up in conversations and meetings like this of February 2018. Well, what were they discussing for the last uh, five plus years? And now uh, from 2018 to 2022, what has been discussed? What has come of it? Clearly nothing. I was skeptical back then. Uh, after the Chinese consulate Karachi attack, and I remain so now that uh, the Chinese will ask the Pakistanis to put even greater pressure, which leads to more atrocities being visited upon hapless Baluch bystanders, uninvolved in all this with clearly mop-up operations being conducted by the provincial constabulary. And that will only lead to greater frustration and um, you know, uh, making the entire place a pressure cooker, which it in any case is. Uh, it's not going to lead to any solution for the Chinese. And the Chinese are jittery. 
And it will be useful at this point to mention that, that the Chinese do not repose confidence in Pakistan's assurances to them. They would never publicly deny it. They would never publicly contradict it, friendship and all that, and to keep a face, uh, and to not make Pakistan lose its face, but privately in Beijing at the foreign ministry and within the Polish Bureau, they do not take Pakistan's word as offered to them, but they take it with a very large pinch of salt. In whatever as, Pakistan assures as, as you said about, it's not a solution for the Chinese, but how much of a solution are these things which are now happening? Um, some say it's, it's the BLA, the Baloch Liberation Army, some have said there are reports which in, 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 you know, allegedly say that the TTP is working together with the BLA. There have been these attacks, now a suicide attack. The, how, how good is this for the Baloch issue and for the Baloch people? It, it will make the situation even worse because bringing in the TTP factor and, and this murky politics, which I can neither confirm nor deny because I'm not in a position to know, but the telltale signs are there. It's writing on the wall in that the Pakistani authorities in the first place and the deep state and the intelligence uh, services had fomented trouble within Balochistan by pitting Sunnis against the ethnic Hazara Shia population, not to mention the Zikri indigenous Baluch Shia population uh, and were painting it with sectarian uh, colors, as I pointed out, which the PHRC lambasted. Pakistan Human Rights Commission, uh, that the government is trying to hoodwink us by pointing it so. By injecting the sectarian uh, factor into it and poisoning uh, intra-community politics has suited the administration because they can hold sway since uh, it's state-managed and state-controlled anarchy for them. So that works in favor of the deep state and the army. And the TTP has been sired by the Pakistani military in the first instance. So uh, there's nothing new on that. We are on very familiar terrain there. So for to contend that the TTP is helping the Baluchis in order to have a gain a foothold or because my enemy is my a friend and that sort of thing, it's all pretty much a hogwash. They could be, couldn't be, it doesn't really matter because all of this has been fomented by the administration or elements of the official of Pakistani officialdom in the first place. So they are reaping a whirlwind. And maybe not them sitting in Islamabad comfortably cocooned, but hapless Baluches, men, women, and children in the provinces and in the hinterland, uh, in the inhospitable uh, parts cut off from development, where there's no electricity or water worth, its, worth the like, and uh, pretty much a wasteland, which is something eyed by the TTP, and to say nothing of the Islamic state, state Khorasan, uh, which has footholds in Nangarhar and Kunar provinces of Afghanistan. Uh, so it's, it, is a, it is pretty much a dog's dinner as far as yeah. things go for Balochistan. You, you, you must have noticed that under the administration of former Prime Minister Imran Khan, the insurgency, as, as we would call it in Balochistan, has intensified. Uh, were there any specific policy measures by the Khan government uh, or his administration that uh, caused this intensification or, or promoted it? Or rather, I'd say nothing. It was Khan's inertia because he was, he was in hock to uh, General Bajwa and the military for having installed him uh, to run his course, which obviously never really lasted his course. And now he's not on, uh, on record as a prime minister. Mm -hmm. He did nothing. 
He did absolutely nothing. Imran Khan promised the world to everyone, from young graduates at LUMS, Lahore University of Management Sciences, uh, sitting and sipping their espressos in Gulbarg, to uh, uh, the hapless uh, Karachi housewife in a Muhajir colony for prices of uh, flour and cooking oil and the like, and everyone in between, including the Baluches and the Pashtuns and so on and so forth. He promised the world he could deliver nothing because he is not in a position to do, deliver anything. So, um, I mean, it, it was a completely lackluster government. He had to, um, as soon as he came into office, he had to uh, coordinate uh, another IMF bailout, which is Pakistan's 13th bailout uh, since the uh, mid eighties and late eighties. So um, there was nothing to be said for it. He couldn't, he couldn't move against the military who calls the shots uh, for what is policy in coordinating and controlling Balochistan. He couldn't do much with the Pashtun movement too, which is a bit closer to home and where there must have been felt a sense of betrayal uh, uh, by a fellow or sensibly a fellow Pashtun but obviously one who is um, considered a sellout. A one-time national hero, Skipper turned sellout. And that's the long and the short of it. And uh, Mr. Wagmar, you of course also have read many Pakistanis or some Pakistanis, they do also sometimes blame other states in the region for the Baloch Liberation Army, for the armed insurgency. Uh, most notably Iran and India. Um, what's the truth about that? Well, last time I checked, it was Tehran that was blaming Pakistan for supporting Jundullah, formed in 2003 under Abdul Malik Rigi, mm -hmm. as fomenting terror in Sistan, Baluchistan, Iran's province. And Tehran has been, un unlike Pakistan, unlike China that I mentioned a moment ago, which will privately criticize Pakistan, but not publicly, Tehran was gutsy enough to do so publicly and has said and called out uh, Pakistan as America's stooge for uh, fomenting travel in its Baluch province and for aiding and abetting uh, Abdul Malik Rigi and his cohorts in Pakistan's province on this side of the border. So, so much for uh, Iran, uh, Pakistan blaming Iran. That's number one. And number two, uh, insofar as uh, New Delhi uh, creating mischief in Balochistan goes, all I have to do is tell your viewers is to turn to a former Director General of the Inter-Services Intelligence, Pakistan's premier external intelligence agency, the ISI, and its one-time head, Lieutenant General Asad Durrani, who in a publication put on record that there is nothing to suggest that New Delhi is fomenting trouble in our restive province of Balochistan, which is pretty much a homegrown issue that we and we alone need to tackle. Now, if your intelligence chief states that, I think I'm pretty much going to go ahead and um, my views are in consonance with what uh, he has to say since he knows a great deal better than you and I sitting here in London and Amsterdam respectively of what is going on in Balochistan. This a uniformed man, this a public servant, this the spy chief of Pakistan no less stating so on record. Why would I dispute what he had to say? Though, of course, the fallout from that is uh, that General Durrani is not quite under house arrest, but for a sort of his pension has been uh, taken. Has been made to pay for, for his utterances he has made recently. Right. Uh, he has been paying for the last two, three years, starting with the pension. And uh, so there you know. I mean, like I said, why would I object to what the Pakistani intelligence chief has to say on record in print? Uh, and uh, dispute him 
who is stating, I repeat, that India has no hand in Balochistan. Clearly, he can't state on record that Pakistan has no hand in Jammu and Kashmir because he wouldn't uh, insult his intelligence anytime soon. And I do not take Lieutenant General Asad Durrani to be either a fool or an unintelligent man. I think I think regarding the uh, the trouble in Jammu and Kashmir, he has actually been on record stating the very contrary, uh, accepting the fact that uh, the ISI in the early 90s and 80s fomented trouble in Jammu and Kashmir by creating these terrorist outfits. And uh, Mr. Qureshi, on that count, a previous incumbent in that same post of Director General of the ISI, uh, Lieutenant General Hamid Gul, in the very early period, just after October 89, when things were picking up around 90, and Pakistan was well licking its chops uh, to foment trouble in the valley, uh, despite uh, what had started off as domestic discontent with the rigged elections. Uh, Benazir Bhutto's first term commenced uh, uh, in 88, if you recall, and prior to her dismissal by Ghulam Isha Khan, uh, it was at one meeting uh, where she, uh, uh, Hamid Gold gave her a rundown of what's happening or what we are doing, to which she just turned around looking a bit stumped and her famous words, are we really doing this there? So, yeah, so it's not just Durrani, but even a previous uh, incumbent, as I mentioned, uh, Hamid Gul back. No, as, as recently as uh, uh, General Musharraf, even while he was president of Pakistan, has accepted uh, these policies. That's been more than moral support. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, no, he went even to the, to, the, to the extent of saying these people are heroes in, in Pakistan. Um, referring to, to various uh, heads of terrorist outfits. Um, but um, how do you see this uh, BLA developing? How, how, do you, how, do you, how do you see them going for? Are, are they going to be uh, put in the same brackets as TDP? Or is there something else for them in the future? Well, Islamabad may try to portray that as a, uh, by tar brushing them as terrorists, mm -hmm. trying to um, foment havoc uh, across the region. It would uh, attempt to do that, no question about it. But the uh, question is, who's going to buy it? I regret to see maybe some would in, in the West who still feel obliged to Pakistan for its so-called ever so dubious questionable cooperation on terrorism. And Pakistan may once again pull it off. But, and then again, maybe not, because uh, Pakistan has been crying wolf for once too often. And I think we in the West have realized now there is a sense of um, skepticism across, uh, not just Washington, but on this side of the Atlantic too. The Germans re uh, recently refused to sell uh, submarines and other weaponry to um, uh, Islamabad against payment. Uh, they didn't want to do business with Pakistan. So that is telling that uh, unless you clean up your act, we're not buying into anything more that you have to say. But they remain very important now. They Trump do. That, will, they will, that is their trump card. And that's the tragedy of it all, because it's, uh, they just keep, they keep portraying themselves as it's either us or the terrorists, and we are standing between them. Mm -hmm. So we are the guardians who are keeping peace on your streets in Europe. They tend to portray that time and time again. And Western administrations foolishly buckle in and buy it. And well, maybe not so foolishly, there are demands when you're in office. It's easy for you and me to uh, be, sit here as armchair critics, but um, they are answerable to our respective populations uh, across Europe for uh, what happens. 
and that uh, Islamabad does uh, blackmail us. It does come down to being a warrior state who blackmails us for these benefits and accruals of uh, terror and mayhem and murder. Okay. Now, Mr. Wagner, I'm coming to the last two questions, which are mostly about the future. First, I would like to discuss that in terms of Balochistan specifically, and in terms of Pakistan internally, what is the future of Balochistan and Baloch people? Uh, it will fester. It will fester and will get worse until, a, and it will become like, it will become like Pakistan, which is becoming a hollowed out state. Now, that's, there's a difference here between a failed state and a hollowed out state. And I want to point out this bit uh, and put paid uh, the arguments that we so often hear in popular discourse of Pakistan being a failed state or failing state. Firstly, it's not a failed state. First things first, it's not Somalia. That should be evident to you and I and anyone else. So by that criterion, it's not a failed state. It's foolish to make such a remark. Is it a failing state? It's getting there, but it's a hollowed out state is what I say. But the paradox of it is that it's also a strong state. Those who have a vested interest in the status quo are not going to see it um, fold up like a pack of cards. Mm -hmm. It is a strong state. And that needs to be pointed out, particularly to Indians uh, who uh, derive uh, considerable glee, I suppose, in the public media and elsewhere, that Pakistan is about to collapse anytime soon. Well, it's not going to collapse anytime soon because it is a strong state. Uh, the military forces, the nuclear arsenal as its uh, security immunity and the like, it's not going to collapse anytime soon. But it is decaying. That is occurring and that is plain for anyone to see uh, uh, as such. It is this hollowing out of the state which will um, lead to a sense of dead-end stagnation of the state in the final run. But it's not collapsing like a pack of cards that so many would like to see happening or so many excitedly chatter about. Okay. And um, before I come to my last question, uh, you recently had the visit of uh, the young former minister of Pakistan, Bilal Bhutto Zardari, to, uh, to the US. Um, uh, there are some who uh, seem to be uh, very uh, optimistic about, about, about him and, and, and his visit. Do you think he made the right noises? Oh, regardless of the noises he made, he doesn't count in the scheme of things as far as I'm concerned, because he's yet another generation of the Bhuttos who are suspect in the eyes of GHQ Raul Bindi. Mm -hmm. uh, there is no love lost between them, going back to his uh, grandfather's um, stage-managed dismissal from office and subsequent execution. Uh, and for the military, Bilawal, Oxford-educated Bilawal, as well as Harvard-educated mo mother, are nothing but Western stooges for the Washington Beltway, and that they would give away too much if they had a chance, if they came to office. And that was one fear if Benazir had not been blown to pieces, that she would have tackled terrorism and brought up other questions that Washington was bringing to bear upon her. Uh, they, were, they were always uh, rumblings within the military about them that they would um, disrupt our strategic assets, our programs, our nefarious programs and the like. So uh, he may try to make amends or build bridges with certain sections of the forces, but nobody's buying it. That is say from their end, because at the end of the day, he is, uh, he is star brushed, he's stained, uh, marked out as a Bhutto. And uh, the military has nothing as far as possible to do with them as a family, if they can possibly help it. And uh, uh, probably it also matters that he's from Sindh and also Shia. 
uh, from his father's side, yes, because his father is a Shia, a 12th Nazari Shia, who, as we know, was being uh, public, uh, privately um, abused by the Saudis in the WikiLeaks, who didn't take well to a Shia as a president. But uh, of course, Zardari is not exactly a sectarian-minded individual, but that didn't cut any uh, uh, ice um, uh, with the Sunni bigots that who run Riyadh. And now you've, you, of course, painted a very grim picture for uh, for Balochistan. Now coming more to the regional uh, issues at hand, um, how do you see Afghanistan and the recent things that have come out out of Kabul uh, with, um, you know, the um, restrictions on women, education, on, on, on burqas, uh, how do you see uh, Islamabad uh, playing a role in maybe alleviating some of the sufferings of, of common Afghan people there? Far from it. It will not interfere. It suits them to have a retrograde obscurantist administration in place. They will not interfere at all with what is being done in Kabul. In fact, they will look on um, publicly with, dis with, uh, with disapprobation but privately they are happy with what is running because they would look upon it as um, just an extension of at least uh, Pakistan, which actually it is not because this Taliban is quite independent-minded and has uh, shown its displeasure when it wants, wants to. But, uh, and and the, uh, the administration in Islamabad and Ralpindi are cagey about them, but they will not interfere at all uh, in order to bring in progressive measures or try to prevail upon them from the rest of the world as such. There is nothing for Pakistan to gain by that and they will not do so. Okay. Well, uh, Mr. Wagner, uh, again, uh, a, a long interview, and I think we haven't even covered 10% of what we wanted to cover, but at least an introduction to the issues in Balochistan, but also in Pakistan and the region. And um, as I said, you have painted quite a grim picture, and I hope you're wrong. Um, but I hope so too, I suppose. I do hope yeah. so too. It, yeah. But it seems like, indeed, as um, I... I was once um, attending an event with the uh, highly regarded uh, scholar uh, Christine Fair, who told the Baloch gathering that the Pakistani military will keep killing every Baloch, even if it has to kill the last Baloch. And that seems to be indeed, as you pointed out, because they actually can, that seems to be the reality. I hope it's not. Uh, but maybe we can, after this, um, you, you alluded to it, to the elections in Pakistan, and let's see what happens there. Once that happens, maybe then we can discuss this uh, further, what can, uh, what can be the future. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Murzi. Thank yeah. you.